This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Anthony Scaramucci, uh, the communications director for uh, Donald Trump, who came in like a bull in a china shop, dropping more F-bombs per sentence, I think, than most uh, comedians do. Uh, Fired by the new chief of staff, uh, John Kelly, and uh, lots of changes coming up in the White House. Here's what uh, ABC chief White House correspondent Jonathan Carroll had to say about it all. Anthony Scaramucci had a spectacular rise uh, in that White House. That first briefing, the president loved it. But what happened is you saw more attention focused on his communications director within the president's inner circle. Some people actually started referring to Anthony Scaramucci as mini-me, mini-Donald Trump. All right, let's bring in Elisa Freeman, public relations consultant. And, of course, you can read her in HuffingtonPostCanada.com, PR Daily, with us now. Hello, Alyssa. How are you today? I am fine, Scott. How are you? I'm doing very well, but I'm a little disappointed that the mooch is gone. The mooch is gone. What a spectacular tenure. <laughs> what was it, 10 days in total, including a weekend? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think it was six working days, if that. Uh, that's for mm-hmm. sure. Uh, so, um, you know, we, we've talked about the, the, the communications director and, and, and then uh, press secretary, Sean Spicer, when he held both those roles uh, and how uh, as soon as he started getting a character on Saturday Night Live, that, that would be the end of him because he is getting more attention than the Donald is. Uh, are you surprised they went from one extreme uh, even further to that extreme when bringing in the mooch? You know, I think when they brought in the mooch, the first thing I thought was, gee, who's going to play him on SNL? And I kind of thought either Joe Pesci, Jimmy Fallon, or maybe even Rob Lowe. So that's the first thing I thought. The second thing I thought is this guy is being really outlandish. Like we know that Trump loves the New York street uh, fighter style, that he wishes the government ran like that. So maybe he brought in somebody who is more of his own ilk that he could get along better with who wouldn't always maybe kowtow to the um, Republicans, you know, the real bureaucratic Republicans who really run the place. So it, it was a very, very interesting pick. But really, how and why would you pick somebody and absolutely let them run rampant? That's the question going through my mind. Uh, again, once Sean Spicer started making headlines and, and making his character making regular appearances on Saturday Night Live, you'd think they'd go the opposite, something that was more low-keyed, something that was more uh, gray suit and tie and, and, and wouldn't steal the show. So uh, it amazes me that they jumped, they jumped deeper into the deep end. Unless they were trying one of their great distraction techniques, Scott. Have you thought about that? Yeah, good point. Because during this time, there was a Senate testimony by a financier whose name was Bill Browder. And he was and did give a very detailed account on how Russian operatives really operate in the shadows and could have influenced and effect, obviously did affect, or allegedly did affect the U.S. election. Now, a testimony such as this, which I think was given the other day, a testimony such as this, such as this would be absolutely explosive. Now, every government does the distraction thing. We've talked about it before. You know, don't look over here, look over here. Um, so this seemed to me so outlandish and so ridiculous and so headline-grabbing that you think, why is this going on? I mean, people will just think that we're crazy and then they'll think it's just part of, you know, the White House de rigueur. Or is this kind of part of a bigger plan meant to 
have us look the other way while something important is actually happening. So and I think it's the latter. So uh, that being said, explain the flip-flop back to, uh, you know, now bringing in John Kelly. John Kelly's the guy that's going to uh, make uh, the mooch walk the plank. So has something happened in that time that we weren't aware of? I think what's happened is is that this whole business about uh, the Russian connection is getting hotter and hotter. You know, you know it's a problem when Trump is asking, gee, is it possible to pardon myself and every and everyone I know and my second cousin twice removed? So, you know, this is an issue. So he has Mueller in, who is continuing with the investigation. His chief of staff was Rance Priebus. And remember, Rance is still part of the Republican establishment. So like with Senator Lindsey Graham and these people that you see on a lot of the U.S. talk shows, these are the guys going, okay, this is crazy and we're going to put a stop to it. So he doesn't have enough of his own people who will take orders from him, which is something that he's used to when running a company. He would say jump, and the others would say how high. You know, he says jump, um, die hard with Republicans, and they say get out of your way. Having fun playing it because you're going to be gone soon. So by putting someone in that is um, more uh, perhaps respectful of him and has the authority of a general and has the appearance of he's going to run it like a ship shape because, you know, he's got military training, so there's going to be no, you know, running around and freelancing and saying whatever you want. This gives us the appearance that everything is going to get better. But in reality, with what is going on in the back rooms with this Russian investigation, honestly, it's only going to get worse. So, uh, over and above the whole distraction theory, um, how do you explain, who made this call? Who made this call? Who decided it was time for the mooch to go after such such a short stay? Uh, Is this Trump after he self-appointed him? Uh, Is this actually John Kelly saying, I'm not running this ship with that, you know, with that loose cannon on it? Who made the call here? I think it's all Steve Bannon. I think that we haven't heard his name for a long time, and he really is the one operating in the shadows and pulling the strings. I don't think that Trump knows enough on how government works, because if he did, he wouldn't think that executive orders were actually law. So, you know, when you sit there with a whole bunch of people and have show your big signature on this very grandiose platter of an executive order, it means nothing. So I think this is all being pulled by Steve Bannon. Uh, obviously, the mooch very uh, vocal about Steve Bannon saying some not very flattering things. Was that the straw that broke? Was that the straw that broke the camel's back? You know, for many of us, yes. Um, of course, it was the straw. And you're thinking, well, but you want to know something, Scott? If you if you if you discount my theory that this is just a distraction technique, um, and you think that. Uh, you know, how are they going to let this, some guy talk to the, the New Yorker and rail about leaks and then just start going off on, on everybody who's internal? You know, how does that really happen? So the notion that the average person would think, you know, how did Trump hire this guy is absolutely plausible. It 100% is. And when you actually look at Scaramucci's, um, you know, uh, career trajectory, this guy ran a multi, multi-million dollar hedge fund. So, you know, you have to think, was he just all part of this? Would he have actually divested of his company when it was about to be sold and he stood to net uh, $90 million? So, you know, you really have to think, did this guy know what he was in for and just thought that he was going to bring his gunslinger style to the White House? I don't know. Yeah, no, you bring up a very valid point. Uh, Why haven't we heard more about Steve Bannon in recent weeks, months? 
Well, let's take a Saturday Night Live analogy. How is the way that they uh, portray Steve Bannon? They portray him mm. as the Grim Reaper, yeah. a faceless character, the Grim Reaper, the the most evil and dastardly um, you know character of them all. So, if you think that this type of guy is actually running the uh, the white the White House, you're scared. Even if you did vote for Trump, you're thinking, you know, who is this guy? He really is, you know, the Doctor Evil come to life that we see in all the movies. So by saying that they took him, I think it was off the National Security Council, they thought, well, you know what, Steve Bannon doesn't have as much pull or he doesn't have as much, um, you know, sway over the, you know, the Trump administration. But my opinion is that he has absolute sway and that I think that the buck really stops with him and that Trump only listens to Steve Bannon. Then why would uh, Scaramucci even see the light of day? How did he even see six days at the White House? Well, okay. So if we take my um, if we take my theory that it was a distraction um, from Bill Browder's t- uh, testimony and how Russian operatives uh, influence and uh, influence uh, elections, then this is the ultimate dastardly idea of a uh, distraction technique. Hmm. So if that's the case, I mean, how outlandish can it get? Like, really, step back, Scott, for a second. Do you really think under any of the bushes, you know, one or two? That do you think that any of this would have really happened under anybody else's administration? That they wouldn't have let anybody, any director of communication, say what they want and start calling up reporters and uh, just going on these screeds of uh, profanity? So they give him enough. Ro- so they give him enough rope to hang himself. Well, they give him enough rope to hang himself optically. So even the, you know, the average person would think, well, that's not a, the right thing to do. You're still representing the administration. You're still representing the president of the United States, you know, the great leader of the free world, so to speak, at this point. So, you know, with outlandish behavior like that, of course you're going to go. There's no way a guy like that can stick around. And I think that this is only known by a very few people in the administration. Certainly, they're not going to tell Sean Spicer anything because, you know, uh, Sean Spicer, who's a very devout Catholic, and here when they were over in Italy, and and the one thing that he would have wanted was to meet the Pope, and Trump didn't let him do that. I mean, you know, Sean Spicer knew the writing was on the wall for him. So, of course, they weren't going to make him privy to anything. But, you know, as a good soldier, you know, we all make fun of Sean Spicer, but boy, oh boy, he got up there day after day and took his hits. So, you know, he's kind of, we'll probably think of him fondly in weeks as the White House press corps gets shut out of more and more information. Uh, What does it say when the distraction becomes bigger than what you're trying to distract everybody from, though? Well, that's when you go into plan B because plan A is blowing up in your face. So when you have plan B, uh, you know, maybe that's when you think, okay, well, we need to pull back faster than we thought this was. So maybe that was, you know, the plan B. Or, you know, when you create a distraction, you also still have to try and contain it. And you do that through um, through messaging. Wouldn't so, this, wouldn't and, this and, have been the ultimate distraction, though? Especially, like, you know that, that comedians have just thrown out tons of material that they were ramping up for uh, Scaramucci. Why not keep the distraction there? Because I think that we took the bait, and I think that the media took the bait. I think we all took the bait, and we all believed that this was really going to happen. And we all pl- and the Republicans played us into a, a narrative that seems so typical of the Trump administration, when really I think what they're doing is, is truly hunkering down and giving us the optics that now that they have uh, a general as the, um, as the what, what is he, the chief of staff now? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, now that they have a general running this chief of staff, 
you know, everything is going to be ship shape again. But, you know, really, you know, military guys aren't chiefs of staff. I mean, I don't know how many military guys have been chiefs of staff in, in, in the presidential history. But chiefs of staff are typically, you know, government operatives who have started from the ground up from the time they were in their early 20s and really know how uh, the whole the whole place works. So they know the ins, the outs, who they need to talk to, who they need to curry favor with, and who they need to keep at an arm's length. The interesting thing that will be is I think what having the general in there is this, is that hopefully he will provide a wall that will prevent the probably what I think is the continual access into the Oval Office. I think if Ivanka wants to go talk to her dad, she walks right in. I think if Jerry wants to go talk to his father-in-law, he walks right in. I think if Kellyanne Conway wants to have uh, a word or two when she was, you know, at the top of the list to be able to walk in, she walks right in. What I hope is is that he will create this funnel that will shut down everybody who thinks that they have an opinion in the White House and create a little bit more law and order. Uh, Where does that leave the tweets? Well, won't that be interesting, Scott? Like, do you think that anybody is going to prevent Trump from tweeting? Well, Scaramucci... Like, that would be a great loss, don't you think? Scaramucci <laughs> said, you know, uh, when in, in his brief tenure, he said, well, let him go, man. Let him rock and roll. We're not here to decode it. He says what's on his mind. Will we get the opposite now? You know, I wonder. I really wonder if Trump will pretend to toe the line while, um, you know, with his new chief of staff. I really wonder. I highly doubt it. Nobody's been able to stop him so far, unless you're actually in the bed next to him or hide his uh, his phone from him. Those tweets are going to continue. Uh, what about uh, what is Sean Spicer thinking right now? Do you think? Boy, oh boy, am I glad I got the heck out of Dodge. <laughs> What and where where does uh, Scaramucci go from here? What about his replacement? Well, you know that's kind of interesting to see how that'll all um, that all that'll all play out. And I think that what we will do is, and, and this is all part of the, I think the distraction. Who's going to be Scaramucci's replacement? Who's going to be this? so? You know, when you look at the White House briefings, they're asking, well, what is the chain of command? What is the line of command right now? And who is um, who does everybody report into? Is it going to be uh, the general, or is it going to be someone else that's going to hire? So, you know, right now this type of narrative of what's going on in the West Wing is really um, preoccupying the media. And let's face it, it makes for great clickbait when you put these headlines up on the website. Oh, you know, and I agree with that 100 percent, Alyssa. Except I do not think that this is going to distract people away from the investigation. The investigation is the investigation. He can take the news cycle off it for 24 hours, but those guys are still doing what they're doing. And I agree, and I really hope that that's the case, Scott. And I think that, I, I you know, what I really hope is that they, they keep at it. And what I think is going on with, you know, there are a number of leaks going to certain papers, mainly the Washington Post and the New York Times. And I think that what people, or even Republicans or operatives, you know, of the actual White House are in the shadows leaking information so that the media acts as the vehicle of the exposés. And I think that that is going to, go, going to continue. I think that we'll probably have another, have a newspaper that will explode with another Watergate-like um, uh, feature. And uh, that wouldn't surprise me if that happens in six months or less. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Federal court has come to the conclusion that there needs to be an investigation into the look at uh, into look at shrinking airline seats. 
We're going to talk about that coming up in the second half of this hour. Going to start things off with the uh, TransCanada, the company behind the Keystone XL project pipeline. This is the one heading down into the uh, United States. Admitted the project may never come to fruition. We've certainly been talking about these for an awfully long time. Is the uh, whole key here delay, delay, delay? To talk more about all of this, Dan McTagg is with us, former Liberal MP and Consumer Affairs critic and, of course, uh, energy analyst, GasBuddy.com to find out more. And Dan is with us now. Hello, Dan. How are you today? I'm fine, Scott. Thanks for reaching out and uh, good talking. It's a beautiful day. No rain today. I know. It's perfect. It's beautiful. So is this going to somehow drive the price of gasoline up or down? Well, it's up two cents uh, overnight here in Hamilton. Um, so you may want to gas up now, but it looks like what goes up must come down. It'll be down another penny or two uh, come Thursday. So uh, nothing to panic over. And of course, retailers uh, throughout the entire Niagara region, uh, Golden Horseshoe, GTHA have been pretty busy in the afternoons shaving those uh, 10 cent retail margins down to almost zero. So nothing to panic over, nothing to fret over. Good weather and uh, decent prices so far. Uh, decent prices. Uh, if you were to ask the oil industry that, would they say the same thing? Well, they would say the same thing right now. And it's interesting because this morning I was uh, putting out a couple of uh, feelers with some of uh, my followers on Twitter uh, pointing out that Canadian oil is now selling for about $10 below uh, the benchmark West Texas Intermediate WTI oil price. So if we're looking at forty nine fifty for oil for WTI, we're actually selling it for about 39 And that's actually something to cheer about because normally we're negative 13 to $14 a barrel. So no doubt there is more demand for Canadian oil. That may be temporary, by the way. Uh, we do sell about two, two and a half million barrels a day. Uh, which uh, at any value means, of course, revenue for the Canadian economy. But more importantly, uh, with what's happening in Venezuela and in other places around the world, it looks like OPEC has cut back a little bit on its heavy oil sales in the United States, so the Americans are buying more from Canada. And they are finding means in which to get it down there, if not other pipelines, and of course, rail. Uh, I know how much Canadians love rail, and we know, of course, the disaster uh, that took place at Lac Bigantic a couple of years ago, but... No pipeline means uh, they'll get it down there by hook or by crook, and that often means uh, the less reliable and perhaps more dangerous rail transportation versus pipeline, which is far more effective. Uh, You talked about the instability in Venezuela. We certainly see that on the news every night. How is that, or will that, or does it affect prices? Well, dramatically. uh, I think it means that one of the largest uh, uh, suppliers to the U.S. and North American market, yes, even here in Canada, in eastern Canada, we have brought in Venezuelan oil uh, because we refuse to have oil pipelines go from east right, west to east. We do bring a substantial amount of oil in from other parts of the world, including Venezuela, although of late, Venezuela has not been able to uh, really promote anything more than its heavy oil. It, uh, its own refineries can't process the oil that they, uh, uh, that they produce. So what's happened, of course, there with their currency problems, their political issues, and of course the sanctions, which could uh, escalate uh, over the next couple of days may mean that uh, they are no longer able to sell oil, in which case Canada and to a lesser extent Mexico is going to have to make up the difference. And we're talking not an insignificant sum, anywhere from 300 to 600,000 additional barrels a day. So that could be good short-term news for Canada. Not so great news, obviously, for Venezuela, which of course is uh, approaching and teetering on the brink of a crisis. 
let's talk about pipelines. Uh, two major <laughs> ones here. Obviously, the Trans Mountain Pipeline, which takes Alberta oil uh, into uh, or across BC to uh, Asian markets. And then the Keystone XL, which takes it down uh, into the, uh, the Texas Gulf Coast and such. We've been talking about these pipelines for an awfully long time, Dan. By the time we finish talking, will they be needed? Oh, they'll still be needed. The question is whether or not Canada will uh, be able to sell or whether another part of the world will simply supply that uh, that need. Uh, there will always be a need for fossil fuels, whether we want to wish this way or not. Um, the question is whether Canada wants to continue to remain in the business of exporting commodities, such as oil. Um, there's no way, of course, that one can look 60 or 70 years down the road, but generally speaking, uh, uh, oil isn't just used, obviously, for transportation fuels. It's used for, you know, so many other things, including anything we use that is chemically based and uh, really at the core of our uh, civilization. So whether Canada is able to use uh, or take advantage of pipelines to sell to the rest of the world, if costs become too uh, dif- difficult or as we're seeing a $36 billion, uh, you know, flight of capital from Canada that has left as a result of uh, investors deciding to go elsewhere to take their business. Uh, the question is whether or not Canada wants to rely on oil or whether it wants to find another industry in which to make up the difference. Right now, that doesn't become widely apparent. It certainly doesn't when it comes to windmills, uh, given what's happened uh, just in Ingersoll in the past uh, few weeks. Uh, so where does this leave the Keystone Pipeline heading south? Uh, it, it looked like everything was a go. Yep. What stage is it at? Well, I think TransCanada has a couple of issues it's going to have to deal with. Obviously, the first uh, denial, the uh, presidential uh, disapproval uh, in advance of the uh, Paris Treaty back in 2015, uh, or late 2015, by the Obama administration, I think really set the stage for the company to uh, rethink its strategies and to find alternative means in which to get its product to market. Uh, there have been a number of pipeline reversals and other uh, uses of U.S. pipelines. So connect it to a U.S. pipeline, then that will eventually get your oil down one way or another. I think for uh, TransCanada pipelines, the issue is whether or not the investment is worth it, whether or not they will have enough people to buy oil from that particular uh, conduit once it is built. Um, and I think it's not a matter of uh, you know whether it's that particular uh, expansion that will be successful. One way or another, Canadian oil is going to get to the U.S. market, and one way or another, U.S. refiners will continue to increase their demand and their appetite for heavy oil because it can do far more than... And this is a, not a controversial statement, but in fact, one that I think can be backed up uh, empirically. We, we know that American heavy refineries, refineries have really favoured Canada's heavy oil versus light oil because you could do more with it at less cost. There's also a problem with uh, a product called naphtha, not NAFTA, but naphtha, which, of course, a lot of U.S. tight oil, shale oil produces. It's very hard to clean. A lot of refineries uh, really not interested in that. So Canadian oil continues to be the favorite uh, of many U.S. refineries who've spent billions of dollars rebuilding, reconfiguring their refineries, whether it's the U.S. Gulf Coast or the U.S. Uh, Midwest, uh, all of those refineries would love to use the Canadian oil. It's a question of how we get it down there. And of course, as I said at the outset, if you're not going to build this pipeline, perhaps there's other secondary pipelines to get it down there, or you'll continue to see an increase in rail activity from Canada and the United States.
I uh, haven't heard much about that as I guess the accident in Quebec sort of, uh, you know, uh, just naturally leaves people's minds. But uh, are there customers that are willing to buy if Keystone does build this? Build this? They're talking about how they're not even sure there's a lack of interest in, as, as far as a customer base. Yeah, you know, in the interim, in the time in which there was delay and, and disapproval by the previous administration, TransCanada uh, Trans found other ways and so did other jobbers. Other people found different ways of potentially getting Canadian oil down to uh, the United States. Uh, the uh, federal government rightly approved uh, the rebuilt of Line 3, which will accommodate more oil. It's the same line, but it's uh, made to improve it to make it one of the best in the world. Um, so, you know, a lot of things have passed while Keystone has been singled out by uh, protest groups and others and activists uh, as the uh, as the uh, you know the lightning rod for anything to do with fossil fuels, so uh, I think that is perhaps one of the reasons why uh, they may have been uh, held back from their ability to send oil down to the states. But it's going to happen. I mean, you're you're not going to stop Alberta oil from making its way to the rest of the world. The question is whether or not we do it uh, by more uh, less impractical means like rail, or whether they do it. Uh, by, uh, you know, secondary pipelines uh, that are sort of uh, can be reversed, uh, can be changed. Um, you know, I, I suspect that what we're going to be seeing here is more of small, a lot of sp- smaller pipelines carrying a lot of Canadian oil over several tiny pipelines versus one massive one, which would make imminent sense. Uh, so in your mind, do you think Keystone will get built? I still think the jury's out on that. I think right now the other thing I think that has moved against uh, Keystone has been the um, the rather dour mood in oil generally. I mean, oil is below fifty dollars the barrel at some points, touching as low as twenty six to twenty nine. It's not like it's a hundred dollars when this was proposed. Um, so for now, in this current context, I think it's not likely that uh, the the company will move on this. We'll know in December when they've had a better chance to assess the market. But uh, it seems that every indication is this may be put on on ice for a while until there's a, an indication that the market uh, will recover or that there is greater need. Uh, while I say all this, of course, we do know that U.S. demand for transportation fuel continues to rise. We're going to break another record this year, something I didn't see coming four or five weeks ago. And yet, uh, you know, you're not going to be able to wish these things away. Uh, yes, people are finding alternatives, uh, but it still requires oil to build the plastics in your electric cars. It still requires oil to you know, to build your chemicals, to buy your paints, to wear your for your clothes and whatnot. So we're still a long way off from the day where we don't need oil. And I think as uh, economic activity increases, so will the demand for oil, particularly Canadian oil. Uh, now, uh, what about Trans Mountain to uh, through BC to deliver uh, our resources to uh, Asian markets? Uh, where is it? The Prime Minister has been adamant about getting our natural resources to market. Well, we have to, and if this one doesn't work, uh, it's been approved le- le- uh, lawfully, legally. Uh, if there is going to be an attempt to try to block this, then I suggest that uh, we'll be sort of on the cusp edge of uh, the uh, those who are committed to stopping Canadian oil at all costs. And by the way, these are foreign interests. These are interests that, uh, that, that uh, have plenty of money coming from outside into Canada, uh, and there is grave concern about that. Uh, that they do not want their oil. It's ironic that, uh, for instance, some of these may come from jurisdictions like California, where, of course, their use of Alaskan oil is far dirtier than anything we could produce here in Canada. 
and yet that seems to uh, not really bother those who are proposing this. But I think Trans Mountain is a done deal. The problem is whether or not the provincial government uh, that is clinging to a very, very thin minority in which you have the proverbial tail wagging the dog, that is the three green seats trying to hold up an entire decision on uh, on, on what has taken years to, to come to fruition, uh, in fact manifests itself into uh, people taking to the streets and blocking this thing. Uh, we'll see uh, if, uh, pardon the pun, the squeaky wheel gets the oil, or in this case, it gets replaced or struck down legally. Uh, so can BC stop this? BC is probably looking at options to stop it because that's partially what they perhaps campaigned on, but uh, it may be well uh, beyond uh, the ability for the province to do that. And of course, it uh, it puts into very, very clear focus whether or not all these attempts at trying to mollify uh, the handful of people around this world that believe that everything Canada produces is dirty um, is really worth the exercise of putting in rigorous environmental, uh, you know, climate change uh, notions when, in fact, at the end of the day, those who you're trying to appease are, in fact, never going to be happy and uh, won't be happy unless it's buried in the ground. Uh, that happens, of course, then, you know, I said we're going to have to look more clearly at how to define our country as it goes forward, because you can't wish away natural resources. The Prime Minister was correct in approving this particular pipeline. It is state-of-the-art. It will be probably the most efficient pipeline in the world. Uh, at the end of the day, it comes down to whether or not the rule of law will be respected or whether or not uh, we'll be subject to political chicanery. Uh, the Canadian oil industry has always seemed to fluctuate over the decades. Uh, we go back to the 70s and see all of that. Uh, you were talking about how uh, you doubt the days of $100 a barrel or $150 barrel projections uh, will ever come to fruition. Is this just a matter of time before this discussion is had again? Is it, does it float with the news cycle? I don't know. I, you know. There was a time when 10 to $15 was considered a... Uh, a good amount to uh, back in 1997, 1998, when we had eight, nine dollars a barrel. Um, you know, 50 isn't bad, and a lot of people can produce a lot of oil at that price. The question is whether or not the world can absorb or can uh, whether this can meet the world's demand. I and mean, we've we've transitioned. Uh, yes, we've talked about you know how people want to move away uh, to uh, from from existing uh, industry to renewables, but we have to recognize as well we are living in a world in which. Uh, you know, peak demand or peak supply is no longer there. Uh, we don't have an issue of supply, although investments in future assets of, of oil will potentially come back to haunt us in a few years because sub-investments in new finds may find us uh, back to where we are, which is somewhat short of oil. Hard to believe that we could be ta- having that discussion, but that could be around the corner in 2022, 2023. Uh, but for now, uh, I think it's it's fair to say that uh, what we're seeing here in terms of uh, oil's future, uh, it's an indispensable part of our uh, of our society, of our civilization. Whether we like it or not, uh, it's done a lot more good than those out there who are really harping that it's done bad. Uh, it wasn't that long ago we were talking about speculator uh, speculation and those who uh, place bets and speculate against and for this sort of thing, driving the prices up and down. Where's that gone? Well, I think it's still there, but the trading houses that were once involved in this are, in many respects, uh, uh, running into trouble. I, I see Noble Trading, for instance, is on the verge of bankruptcy. Uh, Trifigura, uh, a number of other organizations that 
were involved with this, uh, you know, uh, what they refer to as, uh, uh, you know, the uh, uh, financial speculation and money managers and hedge funds have really uh, shied away from oil to the extent that perhaps it's worked in a different direction. They've bet massively on oil's continued uh, uh, decline in interest. But, uh, you know, there is far too much value that oil places the cornerstone of every economy in the world. So there's a point which you can drive prices up and make money and you can drive prices down as hedge funds often do and short your bets and make money in that regard. So it's, that's a bit of a different monster and uh, it doesn't deal necessarily with the fundamentals, but it's always something to keep your eye on because I think we're seeing the other side of it, which is the dumbing down or the driving down of oil prices uh, so people can make money by speculating that it'll go down as well. So it works both ways. Uh, so at the point right now, safe to say we have more than enough oil. It wasn't that long ago when we weren't in that position and OPEC countries were holding us hostage. Is this the new norm now? Well, I think it is, considering that the U.S. has gone from five to virtually nine and a half million barrels of production a day. Um, you know, the untapped resources uh, that exist that aren't even considered right now, for instance, uh, things that are hands-off, which could be considered drilling in the Arctic, uh, more uh, uh, more technological uh, advances in terms of fracking, uh, going to places that were once heavy in conventional oil, you know, the old Texas tea uh, shooting the ground and suddenly oil comes flying out, now been replaced by, you know, two-thirds of the, of the oil we thought uh, did not exist or was trapped in rocks, we can now, you know, we can, we can now get out. I think the days of of, uh, of worrying about oil's uh, supply as far as its physical presence is, is, is now been found to be incorrect. Uh, what we do have to be mindful of is whether or not uh, the cost is worth it. And uh, the new technologies that are involved can sometimes reduce those costs, but it takes a high-cost environment to get them going. U.S. fracking, which has been sort of the miracle return of making U.S. energy independent once again couldn't have happened in an environment of $40 and $50 oil. It took $100 oil to, to make to justify those initial investments. And right now, of course, we see many uh, uh, plays in places like the Permian, so along the border of uh, uh, Arizona and, uh, and uh, um, Texas, where oil can be extracted for as little as $23 a barrel. When it's selling for $50 a barrel, you can see why investors are lining up to ensure that, that kind of uh, drilling continues to happen because there's both demand and a reasonable price and uh, a reasonable return on what they're doing. Dan McTagg has been with us, energy expert, former Liberal MP and consumer affairs critic and analyst, gasbuddy.com to find out more. Dan, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, thanks for having me again, Scott. Take Talk care. To- You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Do you use the cash anymore? You know, it used to be cash is king. Cash is king. Uh, put your credit cards away, your debits, all that tap and, and swipe and thing is cash is king. But is it still? Are we becoming a digitally reliant society? Businesses and shoppers are opting to go the digital way more often than they are using cash. Uh, is it driven by customers? Is it driven by the merchants? To talk more about all of this, Abdul Ashraf is with us, Assistant Professor of Marketing at the Goodman School of Business, Brock University, and is with us now. Hello, Abdul. How are you today? 
Uh, good. How are you doing, Scott? I'm doing very well. Thanks for taking the time to join us. Uh, we're hearing of uh, merchants that are slowly moving to this sort of service. Uh, uh, we can think of uh, co-founder of David's Tea, David Siegel. He's opened up a couple of restaurants in uh, in the Ottawa area and has decided to use a, a no-cash ca- policy there. Uh, saying that it speeds up service and it frees up staff to do things more important than than settling up bills and such. Is this a valid argument? Is, is Does this free up service and staff, do you think? Oh, yeah. Basically, I mean, another good example would be if you look at Sears, uh, they're closing 59 of their stores, right? One is just next to Hamilton, then Castor one. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I would totally agree that uh, companies and retailers, they are moving towards digital. And when we say digital, it's like credit, credit cards, your smartphones, your smartwatches, and the list goes on. Uh, it also includes the e-commerce and m-commerce where uh, customers would just want to go buy online and um, they would not want to go uh, physically to a store even, let alone paying by cash. Um, but uh, personally, what I think is, and based on the research that we have been doing at uh, here at Goodman School of Business, uh, what we have seen is that uh, customers are moving towards um, online and digital shopping more than going to physical uh, retail outlets, and uh, there's many reasons to it. And few of them would be, uh, as you already mentioned, that it's difficult to handle cash, it takes more time, uh, it's difficult to track your purchases. Um, so there's a lot going on um, um, in this particular area. I can certainly see, obviously, if you're doing online purchasing and orders, that sort of thing, that, that obviously you're going to be paying that way as well. Um, but when you're actually going to, to bricks-and-mortar stores where there's a retail situation, uh, is it still faster to admit or administer uh, the transaction through a, a, you know, a debit or a credit card as opposed to handling cash? Oh, yes, it is pretty fast. And more recently, what um, what Apple Pay and many other technologies and many of the smartphone companies, what they are doing is even if you enter a store, your smartphone will be scanned. And what you can do is um, you can take a picture and just go to the counter, whatever pictures you have taken uh, of the products. Uh, the, the cashier only has to check, and the payment just directly goes to your account. I mean, you can just pay without even um, touching cash. So it is very fast, um, and uh, specifically when we talk about online retailing, uh, that's what uh, we have been looking here at Goodman School of Business. Um, It's out of sight and out of mind concept. Uh, So it's both customers, and uh, it benefits customers, and it benefits uh, retailers and merchants as well. yeah, so it's 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 both ways. Um, it benefits both, and it's much faster uh, to pay via your smartphones or your smartwatches, even the Google Glasses. So you don't even have to touch money. You don't even have to uh, to carry cash because it's not safe, and um, uh, you pretty much um, click and go kind of concept. Uh, the ultimate in and out store, uh, the LCBO, where they try to move people in and out as quickly as possible. Um, I remember when if you got behind somebody who had a, a debit card or a credit card, it was like, oh my goodness, are you killing me? This is going to add another 30 seconds to my transaction here. Is it becoming equally as acceptable in situations like that? Um, I think uh, for now, uh, 
customers, especially when we talk about Canada, we are still very uh, skeptical about adopting uh, these sort of uh, payment methods. So we are a, uh, a bit slow adopting those. Uh, but again, I think uh, you have been referring to the, the, the speed with which we can uh, um, process the transactions. Uh, it has gone really fast, and I think it started with the internet, with the online retailing. That was one of the reasons, the convenience part to it. Mm. People, they don't even have to go and buy. It's just that sitting home, you pay, and the uh, the product gets delivered to your place. So I think it's the same concept, but it's, they have just moved on, and it has uh, moved into smartphones and um, smartwatches, where you don't even have to wait. You, your smartphone or your Apple Watch would be scanned by the scanner, and whatever you have purchased, it just, uh, they're going to charge you for that. You don't even have to wait in the queue. So they are getting to that stage, but um, it will take some time uh, when when we look at Canadian, Canadian market. I absolutely never have any cash on me, which angers my wife to no end because she's always asking me for $20, which I never have, uh, just simply because, as you've mentioned, it's just far more convenient not to have it. Um, where, when will we get to a cash, cashless society? Will that happen? Will that happen in, in the near future when, you know, people won't even accept money? Um, I think looking at Canadian market, we just recently moved uh, towards the e-commerce and m-commerce market. We, we, we in general were very slow in adopting even e-commerce and m-commerce, and the credit goes to Amazon. Uh, they just uh, they played a game-changing role, right, uh, by uh, launching Amazon.ca and then uh, updating their websites, personalizing it. So in general, I think uh, Canadians would be slow in adopting uh, these sort of payment methods, especially when we look at baby boomers um, and the uh, seniors who are the ones spending uh, more than uh, the uh, millennials. So I think uh, in general it's going to be slow. It would take some time, but uh, based on the past trends, the way uh, we Canadians have adopted uh, different technologies, especially when it comes to uh, digital technologies, e-commerce, m-commerce, and, and, and now these uh, different uh, modes of payments, it would take some time for us to get there. Uh, are there some industries where this is is, is more workable? It's easier to do, uh, more susceptible. I think um, the grocery retail outlets they they mm. are the ones who are doing it, and I've seen uh, back in Australia, Coles and Woolworth. Uh, like in Canada, we don't. Uh, there there are very few grocery retail outlets who are uh, going for home deliveries in Australia. I mean. Uh, look at Coles and Woolsworth, they have home deliveries even for for, for groceries. Hmm. So um, I think that's the area where you would not want to wait in the line where you have tons of stuff bought, uh, and that's where you, you have to wait. For example, Costco, if you go, you have to wait in the line for about 10-15 minutes yeah. usually. So that, that is one of the areas where retailers are very much interested in trying to get over with the cash and trying to move things faster. Mm. Don't even get me started about standing in line at a Costco on a Saturday. Uh, Abdul Ashraf has been with us, Assistant Professor of Marketing at the Goodman School of Business, Brock University. Abdul, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.